Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. If you are taking notes today, uh, the title of my message is Sriracha Sandcastles and Other Unreliable Obsessions. Sriracha, some of you are like, if I've heard this message once, I've heard it a thousand times. The old worn out Sriracha Sandcastles song and dance. Um, I love Sriracha. Anybody here, you're a fan of Sriracha? Uh, Man, how many of you are just surprised to find that Sriracha actually is S-R? Like that's the way it's spelt. You're like, I think that's a misspelling. No, it's correct, okay? I double and triple checked it because I was paranoid when I saw it on a slide, okay? But I love it. And uh, in fact, I have this thing that I started making uh, at our house that is so delicious. It's like this creamy sriracha honey sauce, and it is delectable, okay? It is amazing. Got a little bit of all, uh, uh, avocado oil in there, some sriracha, a little bit of mayonnaise, some, some cracked pepper. It's delicious, okay? It is amazing, and it goes so good on so many different things, okay? Whether you're talking about vegetables or rice or chicken, it's magical. And I don't know if you've found something that is kind of like one of your favorite things. And sometimes even like when you're in the middle of a day that's not going well, you think about it. Anybody ever been there before? Like I, I will be, if I'm just being honest, I'll be in the middle of a work day where it's really stressful and it's really frustrating and things aren't going the way I want to. I'm like, you know what's gonna be okay? Because tonight we're having crispy Brussels sprouts with the creamy sriracha honey sauce and it's gonna be so good, <laughs> and it's gonna make everything okay, you know? And so uh, the fact that all this is insane, that is the thing that I'm gonna comfort myself with at the end of the day, and I love it. Like, in fact, there, it's so good that there are certain things now that I'm used to eating with the special sriracha-made sauce, if I eat the thing without the sauce, it's kinda of like, meh, you know? Which is, you know, no slight to my wife and her cooking, okay? She cooks deliciously, it's amazing but everything could be next level with this sauce. And I'm ashamed to say, this is the whole reason I wanna tell you this, I'm ashamed to say that there has been a couple occasions, not even just one, which is pathetic, but a couple occasions where I have come home and it has been a rough day and I've been looking forward to when she told me what the dinner was and I was like, you know what that will pair perfectly with? Creamy sriracha honey sauce. And um, I was pretty convinced we had some and I get home and I see the spread out and I go to the fridge and I'm looking for the sauce that I'm making these little batches. And I'm like, oh, we're out of the, 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 the sauce, okay? And I get a little panic in my heart, you know? And I'm like, it's gonna be okay though. And I'm like, do we have the elements? And I'm looking, I find a couple of the things and I realize we are out of sriracha. And I start to feel this anger in my heart. I feel this frustration, I feel this disappointment. There's so many feelings rushing up at me. I don't even know how to discern them all or what to do with them. And I get so upset and I'm like, where's the, where's the sriracha? And she's like, oh, I must have forgot to get it. I'm like, you forgot the one thing that matters. How can we even be expected to enjoy this meal without the delicious creamy honey sriracha dip? And she's like, the rest of us are gonna do just fine. I don't know why you're being so weird right now. 
And she gives me this look like you're being a baby as I'm like freaking out about not having this sauce. And I know she's thinking that because often sometimes she'll pair that look with saying, you're being a baby. And so I can, I'm learning to discern like, oh, that's what that means, you know? And it, it's, it's a bummer because like I get to the other side of it and I look back and I'm like, I did kind of freak out. I did kind of get weird about that. Like, I'm not proud of it. Um, but it like, I'm like, why does that thing mean so much to me? Because I was looking forward to it to a certain extent. And I think if you've ever had a moment like this where you were sort of anticipating or looking forward to something and then it doesn't happen the way you wanted it to, the panic that you experience sometimes surprises you. And you sort of look back and, and somebody's like, you're being weird. And you're like, no, I'm not. And then later you're like, I was being weird. That was weird. I'm not really sure what was happening. And the epiphany I think that I have in these moments is like, man, I guess I cared more about that thing than I thought. And I think if you've experienced a moment like this, maybe it's with sriracha and maybe it's with something less holy. Um, You've had a moment where you're like, why does this matter so much? And I think to a certain extent, at a deeper level, it's that this is the thing that I'm using to remind myself that everything's gonna be okay. When things don't feel okay. And I think that when we look at each of our lives, we all have a bunch of little things that sort of uh, form the building blocks of our sense of security, right? And a lot of these things aren't that like big of things, right? But they're a big deal to us, like air conditioning, it's a huge one. Maybe you have a, go, a go-to drive-through order that's just like, it soothes the soul, right? Your Hulu subscription. I don't know what these things are for you. And when you string a few of these together, you sort of get a routine that you find comforting. And what can happen is if you take one of those things away, it can be frustrating. If you take a few of those things that you're using to form your comforting routine away, it can cause panic. And if you take some of the building blocks of it at the bottom away, what can happen is a full-on existential crisis. And so here's the big question that I wanna pose to you today to make you think and reflect on yourself. What do you rely on to give yourself hope and to make yourself happy? And it's probably not one thing, it's probably a string of things like it is for all of us. And sometimes we don't even realize how much of our life or identity we've built on something until it's threatened, right? Until we don't have access to it, until we don't get it, until it's not gonna go our way or happen the way that we'd hoped. And, and, and instead of often being like, man, should this actually be as big a deal to me as it is? What we often do is, you know what? I'm gonna do whatever I have to do to hold on to what gives me hope. And this is why people, like other people, have outsized reactions to things that don't seem like a big deal to you. And you have seen it, right? When you go to a restaurant and they have Pepsi instead of Coke and the person freaks out and they're like, I don't even wanna eat here. Why do we even come to this dumb place? When the barista screws up their order and they don't realize it until they've driven away and they're like, this day is gonna be horrible. This day is garbage. Like there's no way it can be redeemed when they just wanna watch this, this game that they've been waiting all day to see and the internet keeps freezing and crashing and they freak out. You know, when, when a friend cancels on them and you're like, just go by yourself. And they're like, I can't go by myself. It's useless without them. How dare they? When, you know, they've been planning their outfit and that one shirt is not clean and they lose their mind. Do you guys have teenagers? I don't know, that's what it's like to live at our house. And some of these things, like when you think through them, you're like, this sounds absurd 
to you. And you know why it sounds absurd to you? Because they're not your things. But if you were to be honest about whatever your things are, your things couldn't be any more serious, substantial, or high stakes. And other people look at you and you're like, why are you freaking out right now? That thing is not that big a deal. Just move on. And you think, fools. <laughs> it is a big deal and I cannot move on. I refuse to move on. And in fact, you were dead to me for suggesting I move on. Because here's the reality. It's not about the thing. It's about the confidence and comfort you get from it. It's about your ability to rely on it and reward yourself with it because so much of what you do in your life does not feel that rewarding. You're just doing it. You're going through the motions because it has to be done. And this is like your one thing, so why can't people just get it and lay off? We can get attached to this stuff. And I gotta tell you, no matter what that thing is for you or the people around you, it's never the thing itself. It's the hope it is quietly providing you. And here's the problem with this. When you lose what your hope is in, you lose hope. This is why we freak out. And that feeling is so chaotically unsettling that you can feel lost in that moment. And increasingly, for a lot of us, that thing is a set of political preferences. I need this candidate to win. I need this law to pass. I need this party to remain in power. I need this particular right to be insulated and protected. I need this perspective that I have to go completely unchallenged. I need my side to come out on top. Why? Because without it, there's no hope. We think like our nation is crumbling and the world is falling apart and they're gonna indoctrinate all of our children and we won't know right from wrong and we won't be able to defend ourselves and everyone's gonna be taken advantage of and life is probably not gonna be worth living if all of that happens. I have stacked everything on this thing and so I need it to be what I want it to be. And if this is the place that you've come to, no matter what it is attached to, no wonder you're worked up. That is a lot of pressure to put on something, especially something that you have little to no control over. No wonder that you're anxious and paranoid. There are no guarantees that it's gonna go your way. In fact, there's a good chance it's not gonna go your way. Then what? Because here's the truth that you may not want to entertain. You can build your hope on virtually anything, but that doesn't mean it's strong enough to hold it. In fact, Jesus once told a story that illustrates this truth that I think often gets overlooked. It's found in Matthew chapter seven, verse 24, where he says this, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. And though the rain comes in torrents, and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house and won't collapse. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And here's the issue that I've always had with this verse as I grew up sort of reading this. I don't know anybody who intentionally builds their house of hope on sand. Like nobody goes out and metaphorically or otherwise is like, 
this sand, this seems like, like really, yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly sand and it's going to collapse. And so I'm going to build the house of my hope on top of it, which means the issue is we don't know it's sand. And once we do, usually we're in so deep, we don't want to admit it to ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here is hope is only as strong as what it's built upon and anything but Christ will crumble. And sometimes we don't realize that we built our hope on something until a wave hits it and it disintegrates, until it collapses and we are caught off guard by our level of hopelessness. Because up to that point, we were so confident in our sand foundation that even the suggestion that our foundation was sand felt offensive. And then your savings account gets emptied and you lose hope. Your candidate doesn't win and you lose hope. The bill you lobbied for doesn't pass and you lose hope. The future of your industry is threatened and you lose hope. And because of this, it's important that you understand if you hang your hope on politics, it will collapse. Which is why the early church didn't do that. Their hope wasn't in politics. Their hope wasn't in a candidate. Their hope wasn't in a policy or a party. It was in Jesus. There's this old hymn that I remember singing when I was a little kid, like growing up in church. And uh, it went like this. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then the chorus was, um, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. There's so much truth, but like a lot of things, we can echo something so many times that it loses its significance and meaning. And I wonder for you, what ideas, things, or people other than God have you hitched your hope to? That if that thing doesn't go exactly the way you want it to, that you're convinced you need it to, that you lose hope. Because I would imagine, just like me, just like everybody else, it's enormously tempting to build your life on sand because you don't realize that's what you're doing. There's this story in the the New Testament of Jesus. He's walking around with his disciples and he throws out this question to them. He's like, um, you know, what, what, what do people say about me? Like, what do, what, who do people say that I am? What's, what's the, like, the buzz out there? And they give him, you know, little snippets of public opinion. And then he flips it on them and he's like, what about you guys? You know, what, what, do, you, what do you think about me? Who do you think that I am? And it says this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, that uh, Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds, and you are Peter. And upon this rock, I'll build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about this verse, but like one being the name Peter actually does mean rock. But but Peter, uh, but Jesus isn't saying that he's going to build the future of his movement on Peter as a person, but he's going to build the future of his movement on Peter's declaration. On who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do in the world. In other words, 
like what is being said here is that only Jesus is strong enough to handle the full weight of your hope. And so if you are stacking your hope on things that are not Jesus, you are overloading whatever that thing is and it will eventually collapse underneath you and lead you to a feeling of hopelessness. And this is why we constantly, especially here, bring everything back to the words and way of Jesus. Like regardless of what other people have said, regardless of what even the Old Testament says, what did Jesus say and do on the subject? Put your hope in that. And when you look at this verse that we just read, what does God promise to build on the rock that is Jesus? His church, not a nation, not a piece of legislation, not a party, a candidate, or a ruling. His church, a unified people who prioritize the radical way of Jesus above all else. In fact, Jesus says that all the powers of hell won't be able to conquer it. And that's how we know he's talking about his church, his movement, his people whose hope is solely based in him. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but systems fail. Policies get overturned. Candidates can be corrupted. Parties lose power and nations crumble. Anytime in the history of the earth and humanity, people believed that some political power was gonna be able to save them instead of God, it fell. It crumbled, it disintegrated. And none of this surprises God because he never promised that any of those things would last forever, which is why he told us never to build our hope on it. Because waves are coming. This is the nature of how life works. But if you're a Christ follower, that shouldn't feel scary to you. In fact, Christians, according to scripture, ought to be the toughest people in the face of opposition because when nothing else goes their way, they're still unshakably secure in Christ. In other words, like even when they lose, they still win. They're the only ones that have true peace in the midst of every storm. One New Testament author says it this way to his audience. He says in Philippians chapter four, verse seven, you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. When you place your hope in Jesus, you experience the peace that comes from Christ, knowing that your life is built on something that is unshakable. And that's a transcendent sort of peace that anyone who builds their hope on politics will never gain access to. And this isn't to say that you shouldn't have opinions or vote or care, but it does mean that when things don't go your way, you don't need to panic because God knows what he's doing and he's playing the long game. And here's what that means. There's a section in the New Testament um, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 that talks about this idea. And I just wanna unpack a little bit of this for you. He starts off by saying this, that, that in verse one, that faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. And through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And then the author 
it gives a bunch of incredible examples, which you should totally go and read later on your own time. It's a great way to spend an afternoon. And then he says this in verse 13. All these people, all these examples that he gave, died still believing what God had promised them. But, listen to this, they did not receive what was promised. They saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Verse 16, they had faith in a better place, a heavenly homeland. And that's why God is not ashamed to be called their God. So these people, they genuinely loved God. They could look around and see that the world was broken. And they believed that God was one day gonna redeem it all. And so they fully committed themselves to his way of living. But they didn't see during their lifetime any of the big picture redemption they felt like God had promised and they were hoping for. And some of you are like, oh man, that would be the most depressing thing ever. But the whole point of this passage is that they were not discouraged because they knew that even if they didn't see the payoff in their time and their day, that what God was doing was way bigger than them and their time and their place and their nation. And it says that God was proud of these people. Actually, it doesn't say that. It says that, that he was not ashamed of them, which feels intense, right? When you read this, does it make you think like I do? Like, are there people that believe that they're Christ followers that God is ashamed of? I don't know. If there is, I, I don't wanna be on that list. I don't know about you. But that's not something that I wanna be. And then the author of Hebrews continues on. He's like, he basically says like, I don't even have time to tell you about all their amazing stories, but, but what I can say is this in verse 36. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some were destitute and oppressed and mistreated. Whew. Some of us, if we're honest, we see persecution as not having our party of preference in office. And I gotta tell you, that's not persecution. It may be frustrating, it may be annoying, it may be inconvenient, it may be unwanted, sure, all those things. But it's nothing compared to real persecution. I don't know what your life is like, but I have never lived in fear of being sawed in half. I've never just thought if anybody finds out that I said this or think this or voted this way, somebody's gonna saw me in half. And not for a magic trick, just to die in a brutal way. Hopefully not at a kid's birthday party. I don't know where they're doing this. And the point here is that these people held on to hope even when the most brutal things were happening to them. And if they can do it, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that you can survive the next election cycle. <laughs> then the author says about these heroes of our faith, verse 38, they were too good for this world. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised for God had something in better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. 
Now, this is written very poetically, and so I want to just break it down into very plain English, what the author is saying here. These people that are being referenced as sort of the pinnacle of what it means to follow God and lean into faith and place all of your hope in Christ. These people understood that God's goal for us is to pass our faith to the next generation. Not our politics, not our preferences, not our, uh, our party affiliations, an unwavering action-oriented belief in the words and way of Jesus. Because what God wants to do is bigger than us and our time and our place and our nation. It always has been. But the only way that kids are gonna be able to capture this is if they see us placing our hope in Jesus by the way we live instead of pretending like we place our hope in Jesus while really demonstrating that our hope is really in politics. Which is what a lot of us do. And I'll tell you this, regardless of what you say, the next generation is watching what you do. And what all of the New Testament points to is that if the thing that you are handing off to who's next is not focused on who Jesus is, what Jesus did, how Jesus said to live and be and interact and talk and treat other people, you are wasting your life. And some of you are thinking like, that feels really heavy and I, I hear what you're saying. I'm starting to think that Maybe I have built my life on some sand. Maybe I have built my hope on things that are gonna crumble. I, I, I did it because I didn't realize it. But the question I have is like, how, how, do you, how do you take what you've built on one foundation that is clearly not gonna last and begin to build underneath it another better Christ-centered foundation? And I think that's, Probably the best question you could ever ask. The writer of Hebrews, again, gives us some advice here. This is what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He says, we do this. This is how we switch our foundations. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. And a lot of times what we do is we get our eyes focused on other things. And we're like, Jesus may have initiated my faith, but my my party is gonna perfect it. Jesus may have initiated my relationship with him, but this candidate is gonna be the one who makes sure that everything goes the way it's supposed to. And that's not what these New Testament believers believed. It says if you have gotten distracted and you are placing your hope and faith in other things, anytime you start to get worked up and otherwise, it would be smart of you, wise of you, to be self-aware enough to realize the reason that you are so anxious is that you have unexpectedly, maybe even unknowingly, placed your hope and built the foundation of what matters to you on something other than Jesus. And when you realize that, take your eyes off of the thing that you have focused on that you can see cracks forming in and shift your eyes back to Jesus and you will begin to experience and fill the peace of God, which transcends understanding. It doesn't make sense to people who put their faith in anything else. So 
how do we do that? I want to give you very quickly five practical suggestions in these last five minutes. And the first thing is this. I would encourage you to be honest about what you're really afraid of. And some of us, we claim that we're nervous about this, but we don't want to admit the real fear that that's pointing to inside of us. The beginning of switching your foundation to Jesus is admitting what it is you're really afraid of and then asking yourself, do I believe Jesus can handle that? You know why we get panicked about certain things not going our way? Because if things don't go the way that I see it working out, I'm convinced that Jesus isn't powerful enough to handle the fallout. And that's not a great place to live. The second thing I would suggest to focus your eyes fully on Jesus is to read and reread the gospel accounts of Jesus until they're imprinted deep in your bones. I had somebody ask me the other day, uh, they had just gotten their first Bible from our I Said Yes corner. And they were like, what should, I, what should I read? I mean, we give people a bookmark. We say, start in the book of John, which is one of the four gospel accounts. And they're like, what should I read after that? And I was like, once you finish the book of John, do this. Reread the book of John and then read it again. And when you feel like you have a full grasp of it, then move on to Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then go back and read these four gospels again because Jesus is the foundation of our faith. Understanding his words and his way is everything. And once you have internalized that, you now have a filter in place to interpret the rest of life, circumstances, wisdom, and the whole rest of scripture. If you haven't fully internalized the words and way of Jesus, it, there's probably not a good chance you're living your life according to the words and way of Jesus because you don't know what they are. This is a good place to start. The third thing I would suggest to, to focus your eyes on Jesus is to, before you say, do, or post anything, ask, is this what Jesus would do? And for some of you, that is gonna result a lot of times in Backspace, 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 delete. It's gonna be some apology phone calls. I don't know that Jesus would do this. Fourth thing is this, to decide how you're still going to reflect Christ when things don't go your way. Here's often what we do. We're convinced that Jesus wants things to happen a certain way. And if they don't happen a certain way, we're convinced that Jesus is just as surprised as we are. And then we can act unlike Jesus and treat people horribly to get people to do the thing that we're convinced that Jesus wants them to do. This makes no sense whatsoever. Jesus never greenlit us to act anti-Christ in order to get people to believe in Christ. And if you're toying around with that, you're in some dangerous territory. And the fifth thing I would tell you is this, to ask others if your actions are inspiring young people to trust Jesus. And if they aren't, change. This is the point, to be able to hand off our faith to the next generation. This is the greatest thing you could do with your life. This is why we invite you to serve and to give and to be a part of investing in what is happening here at our church because it's not really just about us, it's about the people coming up after us. 
Because I think much like the believers that Hebrews is talking about, we have this vision for what we believe God wants to do in the world, that he wants to reconcile and renew and rescue and redeem all things. And everything that you wanna see God do, here's the reality. It's probably not gonna happen exclusively in your lifetime, which means the best way to see God do what he wants to do is to make sure that you are modeling in front of those who will live after you who Jesus is, what Jesus is like, how to live like Jesus. Some of us are convinced that we are committed to God and the way in which we live out that commitment to God is turning the next generation away from God. And some of us aren't even aware that that's what our behavior is doing, which is why you need to ask the people around you, what is the way that I'm living? How is it impacting the next generation's view of Jesus? And if it is not opening their heart to who he is and what he said, we need to make a change if we're really going to be Jesus followers. I wanna challenge you as we wrap this series and turn the page into something new, that you would tuck these ideas in your heart. Because here's the thing I would tell you, if you build the house of your hope on anything other than Jesus, it's a sandcastle. And when the waves come, it's gonna come crashing down. But Christ is reliable. Christ is the solid rock that we can count on. And I wanna encourage you, no matter what is going on in your life today, no matter what you have realized that you have put your hope on top of, it's never too late to fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's what I wanna pray into your life today. Would you bow your heads across this, this room God, I am, I'm so incredibly grateful for the hope that you give us in your son, Jesus. God, you give us life and life is not perfect and the world is clearly broken and marred by sin and systems of sin, by things that aren't the way that you made them to function. And God, we can get so frustrated we can get so inundated with the way that we want things to be that we start trying to make things the way we want them to be, convinced that it's the way you want them to be, and we start doing it in a way that you would never want us to do it. And God, I pray that we wouldn't panic, freak out, or act in ways that do not reflect you because we are so committed to you, because our hope is stacked on you because we fully see you as the initiator and the completer of our faith. God, that you are the one who approaches us and gives us hope in you, and you are gonna be the one who leads us through your way to see the world become as you want it to be. Not by using otherworldly tactics, but by seeking you, reflecting you to the rest of the world. God, may the one thing we be known for is handing our faith in Christ 
to the next generation because they have seen how we've lived and they recognize there's no better way to be. There's no more hopeful way to be. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.